0: Every year at Harvard Divinity School, we welcome a new class of students and we welcome five new scholars to our women's studies and religion program, each one of them working on a book length project that advances our knowledge of the relation of women to religion. This year is like no other, we welcomed our first fully online class of students. Uh, a wonderful group that I've had the chance to start working with in class this semester. We also welcomed a remarkable group of women's studies scholars who I'm pleased to introduce to you today. I'm so grateful to them for persevering in their important work in the strange circumstances that we find ourselves in this year. We'll all be conducting our colloquia online and so we're happy to come to you online for the first introduction of the scholarship of this year's Five Scholars in Women's Studies and Religion. Miriam has just joined us. So I'm going to give her, uh, even though she's an A in the alphabet, I'm going to give her a moment to uh, get settled into our Zoom call. And um, I'm going to start with our second research associate in alphabetical order, uh, Professor Naisha Jr., uh, who I see is wearing the number seven tonight. And I hope you'll explain that to us. Um, professor Jr. is associate professor of religion, um, uh, teaching Hebrew Bible at Temple University. She's the author of An Introduction to Womanist Biblical Interpretation and most recently to a reception history that just came out this summer, Black Samson, the untold story of an American icon. Um, And a Professor Junior is with us this year working on an exciting project, um, focusing on one of the pioneering figures in the religious history of American women, the Black Christian preacher, Jarena Lee, who was denied ordination during her lifetime in the 19th century and then was posthumously ordained by the African-American Episcopal Church in 2016. Uh, Professor Junior, what made you interested in studying Jerina Lee? And why do you think her story has become so important in the 21st century? Um, And lastly, if you have time, I'd be grateful if you could share with us how your previous scholarship on the Hebrew Bible approaches your uh, informs your approach to the study of Jervina Lee. Professor Junior.
1: Thank you. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Naisha Junior. I use she and her. And I bring you greetings from Philadelphia, the unceded territory of the Lenape Nation. Um, Dr. Brody asked about the number seven, I'm wearing a Kaepernick jersey from the 49ers. Um, And to return to the research, uh, this year I'm working on a project on Jarena Lee, as she mentioned, a 19th century black woman evangelist who was part of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, She was denied ordination and was posthumously ordained in 2016, as she mentioned. So my project is called The Resurrection of Jerina Lee, and it's a biography, a reception history, and an oral history that looks at how various religious and literary communities have understood and reclaimed Jerina Lee. I first found out about Jerina Lee in my MDiv program at the Pacific School of Religion, Um, Although I grew up AME and I knew about uh, pioneering figures like Richard Allen and Sarah Allen, I'd never heard of Jarena Lee. So the project came about because I was interested in finding out more about how she became this figure. Um, The work I do as a biblical scholar relates to this new research because my work has moved in the direction of reception history. So I'm interested in texts, but I'm also interested in how people use texts, um, the use, the impact, the influence that texts have. So my uh, most recent work on Black Samson was looking at the figure of Samson in American life and culture. And Jarena Lee is just a movement in that direction to focus Mm -hmm. specifically on one figure and to talk about how different people understand her over time. The class that I'm teaching this fall is called Black Women, Black Church, and Self-Narratives, and we'll be looking at Black Women's Memoir and Autobiography, in part because Jerina Lee wrote her autobiography in the 19th
0: century. That's great. Thank you so much, Naisha. And um, I know there's a huge amount of interest in your class. I think that's going to be a really exciting opportunity. Um, and um, you were so disciplined in keeping to the time, we probably will have some time for questions. So um, you can put questions into the chat and we'll, we'll hold them till we've heard from all speakers. But uh, we hope we'll that Uh, All the speakers will have a chance to answer one or two questions at the end. Now I'm going to return to um, Professor Miriam Ayad, who is an associate professor of Egyptology at the American University in Cairo. Um, She is the author of God's Wife, God's Servant, the God's Wife of Amun. And um, uh, Professor Ayad recently convened an international conference on women in Egypt Women in Ancient Egypt at the American University in Cairo, Um, and at that conference, Miriam, you began by addressing the topic of gender bias in Egyptology. Um, Why does it matter that there is gender bias in the study of the ancient world? Uh, What does your current research reveal about the potential of gender analysis in Egyptology and about the contributions Egyptologists can make to women's studies in religion. And finally, I would love to know who is your favorite female figure in ancient Egyptian religion, and what should we all know about her? Miriam.
2: Well, thank you for the introduction. I appreciate it. But that's also a lot of material to cover in a relatively short period of time, so I'll try to whiz through it. Um, and i would be happy to take questions later on. Um, Can I start by addressing aspects of gender bias in Egyptology? Um, Because um, at the moment, if I go to a national meeting of my profession, most of the attendees and presenters are women. So it's not that we're underrepresented. The issue is really um, how the evidence has been interpreted over the years. And in my paper that you mentioned at the conference, I gave some blatant examples of that where... Uh, say, a scribal palette um, inscribed with the name of a princess would be discarded, not not considered an evidence of her literacy, but first discarded as a toy or maybe a votive offering or maybe a painter's palette. So everything and anything but evidence of her literacy. And I, through my research, it became very clear that... Um, evidence for uh, male officials or male literacy is not subjected to that kind of scrutiny or criticism. And it became also very clear that people are taking evidence of female empowerment, including literacy, and, and uh, effective uh, roles in the temple as um, mostly exercises in critical thinking. How many ways can we come up with to discard the evidence? Um, and sometimes within the same article, there would be uh, a, arguments that are quite opposed to one another, but they're put forward just to discard the evidence, not to seek truth. So what I really am very passionate about is understanding Egyptians, ancient Egyptians, on their own terms. Whether I'm looking at the social structure or religious practices, men or women, doesn't matter. and. Um, we all have biases and it's very important that we recognize our own personal biases when we're examining the evidence rather than projecting them onto the evidence and coming up with ideas that are really generated by our own experiences and not by the evidence presented to us. Um, we can come back to that uh, later on, but I think the added value of understanding the evidence on its own terms um, um, is essential to understanding such an ancient culture. Ancient Egypt is um, so popular because so much survives of it, and sometimes that can be um, the curse as well as a blessing because of the embarrassment of, of riches that constitutes our evidence, right? So people are very busy either doing direct translations of texts or site reports, and often there isn't, the time uh, or the academic reward for stepping back and actually being analytical about what it is that we're reading or finding. Uh, And again, we can talk more about that um, later if, if people are interested. In terms of my favorite religious figure, it's actually Queen Hatshepsut because she was a truly innovative person in terms of initiating new cults in the Theban region and initiating things that became standard in the later new kingdom. And often, she's not given credit for that. We often hear with Amhotep III, the II, or Akhenaten, and his wife, Nefertiti, But um, really, Hatshepsut was foundational in terms of establishing new cults, instituting new rituals and festivals that became part of the normal religious practice in ancient Egypt. And she's not given enough credit for her work in that regard.
0: Thank you so much. This is really fascinating. And uh, we obviously have a lot to learn about gender in Egyptology. Um, next, I'm going to introduce Dr. Georgette Legister, who goes by Jojo. Um, Dr. Legister is a native of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And she is an instructor at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. She received her PhD from Emory University. Um, Dr. Legister, your topic is Charlotte Masangu Wanakulu, who rose to the highest ranks of the Meme rebel movement during the five-year war in the Democratic Republic of Congo that began in 1997 and became the most deadly conflict since World War II. While most accounts of war treat women solely as victims of violence, you focus on a woman who engaged ancestral power to become a rebel leader. In a country where the legacies of colonialism and slavery continue to cause dire poverty and violence, there are many urgent topics of study. Why is the study of the religious practice of a female rebel leader important enough to be among them? What was it like for you to study such a controversial and gender-defying figure? Jojo. Uh,
3: Good evening, everyone. It's exciting to be here. You ask really great questions that I will try to answer um, concisely so that we can get to the discussion. Um, There are so many assumptions that are made about Africa, about African women, about African religions. And this project was an opportunity to um, really delve into aspects of African religions and the personhood personhood of African women that are often um, elided or missing from the way that we um, approach the academic study of religion and gender. And so um, while you're right, there are so many aspects of uh, my home country that could be studied, um, the the access to agency that the Mai Mai um, rebel movement offered to women, um, it offered them protection through their rituals from rape Um, It offered them the ability to um, rise to the rank of general, which um, outside of the war, those were roles that women were not seen as accessing. Um, And it paints a picture of um, Africa that is often not seen. And um, it's very Black Panther-esque in the mystique around it. Um, And so I think my own sense of interest, you know, in encountering these narratives, I was fascinated, I wanted to know, is this real? Is this true? How is this possible? And of course, the outcome is um, a study that was phenomenological in nature. I studied the phenomenon and the meaning that people made um, from the acts of valor that this woman performed. Um, and it, it, it really brings together the fields of religion, gender and conflict in ways that I think can point us to how it is that religion and not just African religions, but how religion can help people to make sense of the world in times of crisis. And we are in a time of crisis right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and as far as how it was to study um, with her, um, I was frightened of her the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, my nine-month-old daughter, she was nine, nine months at the time, she's four now, um, came to the field with me, and so did my mother. Um, so I was a new mom and doing this work with the warlord. She looked just like one of my aunties. I mean, she, she looked just as ordinary as you could, um, but did these extraordinary things and taught me so much about Luba, Um religion and cosmology. And my kid was not afraid of her. I think she was afraid of my kid. And so it kind of (laughs) balanced that a little bit. But um, it was a lesson in so much, but also in life and in womanhood and in personhood.
0: Mm. I can't wait to learn more about this topic. This is absolutely fascinating. And thank you so much for bringing it to Harvard Divinity School. Um, Next, I would like to introduce Uh, Dr. Nahid Siamdust. Uh, She comes to us from Yale University, where she spent a number of years as lecturer in Persian studies. Uh, And I'm very proud to, uh, and pleased to give some hot off the press news that when she leaves here, she will be assuming a new tenure track position at Rice University. And I'm not sure what the department is, but maybe she will tell you. Yeah, we're really thrilled, thrilled about that. uh, Dr. Siamdu's first book on music in modern Iran has one of my favorite book titles ever, The Soundtrack of the Revolution. Um, and we are thrilled that she is here this year to work on her second book on music in contemporary Iran. Um, Nahid, the religious regulation of women's voices and how women circumvent those restrictions has long been a major focus of women's studies in religion, yet few studies have focused directly on musical voices. How does the discussion of women's voices shift when we turn our attention to female singers? Can you help us understand the life of a woman singer in a country that makes her solo voice illegal? How is the use of new media allowing women singers to have an impact on Islamic law?
4: Thank you so much, Anne, uh, for this very kind introduction. I, I just have to correct that I'll be an assistant professor at the University of Texas in Austin. So oh, I'm, I'm at so Austin. sorry. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, that's all right. And yeah, thank you department so much. What department Sorry? What department? I'll in the Department of Middle Eastern Studies. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Perfect.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank sure. special- you such new news, I didn't have it in writing.
4: That's all right, that's all right. Um, I'm very excited about it. And thank you for your very great uh, questions. I might take a few more minutes than my fellow um, panelists did. And I just should say that I'm so excited to be part of this group of scholars and very excited to be exchanging ideas with everyone and having the luxury of this year of doing my own research. Um, The first question about, as you mentioned, my you know, about music and you mentioned my book. So in my first book, I studied politics through music. And what I learned was that when we shift our gaze away from a brick and mortar understanding of politics, when we shift our gaze toward the cultural and in the case of my book, music, um, and in my second book, I'll be looking at music as well, but it'll be one of the chapters. And we find a space that because of its being untethered from sort of traditional notions of politics actually presents a more multifaceted, nuance and ultimately freer space for the negotiation and mediation of cultural social and um, political values and the same applies to shifting the the, you know the question from women's voices such as uh, let's say political expressions and demands and newspaper articles or political rallies um, themselves very important in their own right. But when we shift our gaze, especially within authoritarian systems, we're able to witness the same sort of slightly under the radar quality of interaction, which Mm -hmm. allows for greater pushing of the boundaries and greater fields of action. And very importantly for me, since I work on the contemporary period, the empowering affordances of new media, Um, though, as in most cases in Iran, too, we have to temper our enthusiasm of new media, Um, because they are equally used by regimes to varying degrees, whether in the U.S., Iran, or Hungary, to securitize the public sphere and stifle dissent. And then, of course, there are tonal and affective qualities to music, and especially the human voice, that are able to relay feelings or sentiments that circumvent verbal and rational communication to deliver a certain message, which may or may not be received in the originally intended way. In terms of uh, sort of understanding the life of a woman singer in a country that makes her solo voice illegal, in my research as an anthropologist, I interviewed several of the most prominent solo singers, uh, solo female singers. One of them, Patty Sa, was at the beginning of the height of her career. So when the revolution happened in 1979, she was in her late 20s, and she would have gone on as a sort of classical vocalist to have let's say 30 years of a glowing career um, when she was told that her voice was haram, uh, forbidden by Islam, and that she could no longer sing. She went silent for about 15 years. Literally, she told me she didn't even sing to herself. It was that kind of revolutionary sort of, you know, context that, um, you know, not being able to pursue her career and passion, she just went silent. And um, only about 15 years later started figuring out how she could continue her profession with integrity. Um, And she decided the way she could do this was, you know, go abroad and give concerts there, publish her work abroad, which was also forbidden inside. Um, And she's remained living in Iran. And uh, interestingly, because of the particular genre of the kind of work that she does, the authorities haven't bothered her. She has enough of a sort of, you know, stature that they won't touch her, even though she performs without a hijab outside of the country. Because usually when people do work outside of the country, when they come back to Iran, they can get into trouble. And um, so... The, the, the government's able to control not only what people do inside Iran, but also if they wish to continue living in their own home country, what they do outside of the country. Um, but because of media technology such as, you know, of course, cassette tapes and then VHS and CDs and satellite TV technology, a large number of Iranians have been able to consume her work and the work of other women who've produced outside of the country. And so this path has worked for Parisa, she's chosen not to engage at all with the internal regulatory or political field. Um, And partly prompted by this development and the recognition that half of the nation's voices had been silenced from singing, the Islamic Republic around the same time in the 1990s devised plans to organize concerts by women for women. So these are spaces that are highly securitized where no one is allowed to even take a picture because none of what happens within within that context is allowed to leave that context and um, you know um, uh, be be consumable by uh, by men. Um, Sub believe that this gender segregated format relegated her to a second-class citizen and she decided that she would never take part in these kinds of foras but of course others have. There's just such a big discrepancy in on this topic in the pre versus post-revolutionary or Islamic Iran. Iran had an illustrious pop music empire with female singers that gave world tours prior to the the revolution. So people have continued listening to this pre-revolutionary music from women and also younger women who live in exile. And now over the last decade, a whole new generation that has grown up consuming this heritage has come of age presenting a considerable number of master vocalists who have posted their work online, which are avidly consumed. Um, but of course, these women can't give concerts inside Iran or legally sell their work. So they've resorted to all kinds of tactics to create a fan base, including private concerts, you know, concerts abroad, and singing multivocally, which theoretically is allowed. So in the end, uh, at this point in time, any female vocalist who reaches prominence, any kind of traction on social media has a lot of followers, um, now really has to contend with, and it took, it took the state several years to figure this out, but now really has to contend with repeated interrogations and impositions of restrictions on their works, both offline and online, um, which as some of my interviews told me, uh, can be very debilitating to an artist. And then moving on to the question about, you know, how's the use of new media allowing women singers to have an impact on Islamic law? To put it in a nutshell, new media affordances have allowed women singers to push the boundaries to the point where state and religious authorities have been called to task to openly and clearly present their opinions on the female voice. And in the process, we've witnessed somewhat of a, you know, the emperor doesn't have any clothes moment, where even Iran's supreme leader has um, reiterated his already long standing jurisprudence that in and of itself, um, female vocals are not haram. So inadvert- inadvertently admitting that the issue is a political one. So it's not so much that you know, through their use of new media, women singers have managed to bend Islamic law, but that the veracity of this law existing so categorically um, has been shaken to the core. And um, you know, furthermore, because of women's efforts to publish their work in online fora, and these questions coming to a head, we're now learning more about the state security bodies and how they work to limit women's presence, not just physically in Iran, but even abroad and online. And this is something that I'll talk more about in the lecture that I'll give later this semester. I'm really sorry about the interruption here. Um, I just want to say a a sentence about the course that I'll be teaching. I realize I've taken much more time than all my uh, fellow panelists. Um, So for those of you who will be joining us, We'll be examining instances like this one. So, you know, solo female singing in Iran and the, and the debates and the kinds of political and cultural fissures that they throw open and really hold them against the grain of what the Quran or Sunnah Islamic traditions have been interpreted to prescribe. And we'll do this by examining a diverse set of texts and events in various media across five Muslim-majority countries, um, namely Egypt, Turkey, Iran, Lebanon, and Saudi Arabia, I'm really trying to incorporate a comparative perspective into our readings. Thank you.
0: Uh, Thank you so much, Nahid. And thank you for persevering. You're incredibly poised. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, And that's all part of women's studies. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Our last speaker tonight, um, before we get to the discussion, is Dr. Meryl Winnick. She goes by Mimi. Uh, Dr. Winnick is an instructor in the Department of English at Virginia Commonwealth University, and she received her PhD in English literature from Rutgers University. Um, Dr. Winnick, your study focuses on the first generation of women academics in Great Britain. At a time when modern knowledge and modern women were defined by a rejection of religious faith, These women scholars turned to the study of religion to pursue feminist alternatives to scholarly and religious traditions. How did their approach to religion differ from that of their male colleagues, who we have been taught to view as the founding theorists of religious studies? These are the very figures whose absence from the curriculum led to the founding of this program. Do you see a connection between their embrace of alternative spirituality and the contemporary embrace of spirituality without religion? Mimi.
5: Thank you, Anne. um, And thank you all. I'm so delighted to be here amongst my fellow RAs and to um, sort of begin the acquaintance with um, all you students. I'm really looking forward to working together. Um, so yeah, the, the context that I'm looking at here is sort of the late 19th, early 20th century, primarily in Britain, when um, women were first working at universities as research fellows and professors. They had sort of entered as students at women's colleges and some co-ed colleges um, and universities in the generation before. And I focus on women working in classics, especially the study of ancient Greek, um, medieval studies, Egyptology, um, and folklore, who from these fields became sort of theorists of religion who I'm hoping to, in a way, sort of critically recover. Um, And I'll talk more about what I mean by critically there. Um, So their their research shared much in terms of subject matter with their male colleagues. Um, And interestingly, at the time, a lot of the sort of founding male theorists of religion who we might be more familiar with, um, everyone from sort of uh, the Germans, uh, Friedrich Engels, J.J. um, later Sigmund Freud, um, also the Brits like J.J. Frazier, author of The Golden Bough. They were really interested in these like pretty um, grand narratives of the evolution and a long history of religion that saw religion as emerging in this sort of primitive stage of humanity in so-called sort of matriarchal um, stages of society. So they saw sort of religion as woman-centered, even goddess-centered. And the women that I look at who include um, the classicist Jane Harrison, the medievalist Jesse Weston, and the Egyptologist Margaret Murray, were really interested in this too. And I'm interested in how they as women themselves who were in this period kind of had a privileged relationship to religion. Women were seen as, um, according to sort of evolutionary doctrine, a bit more uh, primitive, closer to these origin, uh, sort of evolutionary origins in a very derogatory way. So they had this sort of privileged relationship to what had become for these sort of Um, academic theorists of religion, the derogatory category of primitive religion and even a religion itself. Um, And the way they saw this sort of early original religion was as this sort of mystical, ritualistic, not yet um, creedal, not yet sort of dogmatic. Um, And I'm quite interested in how the women in this period um, took this same subject matter but um, and a similar sort of history, but really told it in a very different way and changed its meanings and especially the values of these sort of stories. Um, And so they took this sort of set of associations among women, um, sort of irrationality, mysticism, and primitiveness or backwardsness, um, and sort of told stories that actually celebrated these linked categories. Um, So in contrast to someone like who would tell these stories of spiritual evolution, that where religion sort of begins in superstition or magic, proceeds through more rational versions of religion, often coded as Protestant Christianity, and culminates perhaps in like a more rational science and the liberation from religion um, entirely. Um, these women tended to sort of present the origins of, of the, the sort of mystical, ritualistic religion as something um, superior, closer to like a true religion or a true spirituality. Um, spirituality because it was vaguer, mystical, um, not organized, not dogmatic. Um, And so uh, this becomes particularly interesting when they begin to write in a slightly more sort of prophetic mode and begin to sort of suggest that these ancient Uh, Origins of religion have um, either been sort of incidentally preserved in art um, or in some cases more conspiratorially sort of like purposely preserved in secret traditions. And this is where you get some echoes of like 19th century new religious movements like theosophy in these women's work. There were some um, direct connections between the academic work and the sort of new religious movements and practices. Um, And I realized that I, I can kind of hear myself. I tend to get like a little caught up in retelling these stories and these changes in the values of women and mysticism. I think it can sound like very exciting and enchanting. Um, And I think it can sound kind of familiar too. Um, And this sort of brings me to Anne's second question about is there a connection or do I see a connection between these theorists embrace of an alternative spirituality in their histories and theories and the contemporary embrace of the sort of spirituality without religion, spiritual but not religious. And so um, sort of emphatically, yes. (laughs) Um, Part of this is a a direct genealogical link Um, um, between the work of these women and um, sort of new religious movements, So for example, the Egyptologist and folklorist Margaret Murray writes this book published by Oxford in 1921, The Witch Cult in Western Europe, um, that is sort of a huge hit and basically becomes a founding text for Wicca a couple of decades later. And she goes on to write the introduction to Gerald Gardner's um, sort of persuasions of the witch's craft. Um, so there are these direct links, um, and there's sort of direct links to um, sort of critical um, feminist takes on religion. So Mary Daly um, engaged with Jane Harrison and Jesse Weston and Margaret Murray in her critiques of um, patriarchal Christianity and religion, um, but there's more diffuse links too. Um, and I'm sort of really interested in the way that um, these women I think have um, kind of inspired a lot of enthusiastic readers to see academic inquiry, so a not no, not exclusively a theological engagement with the religion, but specifically sort of humanist academic engagement with, of the study of the religion. Um, and how they sort of presented this itself as a spiritual practice that could be like conducive to these feelings of ecstasy and enchantment that I think people sometimes find in these narratives. And so I'm really interested in exploring the long history, the reception of these theories, um, not only in new religious movements, but also in sort of more popular fiction and other sort of broader popular cultural engagements with um, esotericism and this sort of spiritual. And not religious. Um, and there are sort of the more pernicious sides to this too. I mentioned that sort of conspiratorial style that comes into some of these stories about the preservation through secret traditions. And I'm sort of interested in how um, these theories of religion have also had an impact on sort of shaping uh, sort of overlapping relationships between the spiritual and not religious and um, sort of conspiratorial thinking as well well. Um, So I'm hoping I'll get to explore um, some of these things in the course I'll be teaching in the spring, uh, Modern Women's Writing and Religion. Um, That's going to be focused um, looking more at literary writing. So we're going to read Virginia Woolf, Sue Neale Neil Hurston, um, among uh, probably those of the most famous folks we'll be looking at, and then some lesser-known writers looking at the way they combine um, spiritual uh practices with practices of inquiry um and in their cases as literary writers with aesthetic practices as well thank you
0: thank you so much um, let's see I, it, you know it's really remarkable when the search committee selects the group of scholars from the hundred applications that we review every year uh, We're not trying to. We're just looking for the five best projects. But you can see all of the synergy between these lines of inquiry, um, particularly the issues of women's voice and um, the the way the issues of erasure um, that these projects will undo. Um, Now, uh, we're we're starting to see some questions in the Q and A. Keep them coming. Um, But before we turn to those, I'm going to give the panelists a chance to ask each other questions because this is the first time that they have heard each other speak about these projects. And um, I know that they're starting to see the the common questions and elements among them. So um, just let me ask the panelists if any of you would like to address a question to Uh, your sister panelists before we go to, oh, yes, Uh, Georgette.
3: So I have a question um, for Naisha, for Professor Junior. And um, I'm I'm sure you're aware of this. I think the hashtag, um, Jarena Taught Me, um, started trending on social media um, a couple years ago. And um, it became a rallying cry right around her um, posthumous ordination um, for women who were reclaiming um, aspects of her um, autobiography, for those who read it, aspects of her um, life, of her ministry, and claiming it as their own and drawing direct ties um, to her and elevating her posthumously, saying, you know, as a minister, as a woman, as a leader, as a scholar, I link myself to Jorena Lee, Jarina taught me. Um, Will, how do you feel about um, the reclamations that we often so do in trendy ways on social media? Um, And my second question to you is in your work, um, will your work address the ways in which we um, are not just recreating this figure and making Um, her an icon but the ways in which we um, allied or erase or um, polish over aspects of uh, or sacralize aspects of um, figures that we now hold to be um, on a higher level at a higher platform. Is there is there room to critique some of that um, process that we um, put people that we admire through?
1: Thank you for your question. Um, Yes, I think that um, there are women who find that Jarena Lee for them is a figure that they uh, found out about, learned about, read her autobiography, and unfortunately still resonate with so much of what she endured. Um, And so I think when you Consider the struggles of particularly black Protestant clergy women today, many of them have some of the same concerns that she had uh, in the 19th century. So I think that's one of the reasons why um, people gravitate to her. And I'm hoping that part of the oral history project will help me to lift up some of those concerns about how basically this is like a canonization process, the posthumous ordination. Um, we'll talk about some of the positives and negatives of trying to connect her story with those of contemporary women.
0: Thank you. Um, does anyone else on the panel want to address a question to another panelist? Yeah, Nahid.
4: Yeah, I can ask a question of Jojo. And I think the question applies to um, some of the other panelists as well. But I'm just wondering within you know these, uh, when when we're studying women exceptional women like the rebel leader and the general who you've studied what what were some of the what are some of the structures and i know this is a very sort of big question uh, i know this is a very big question but what 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 were some of the you know systems in place aside from clearly she could kind of overcome the pa- whatever patriarchal norms were in place to achieve something that other women hadn't done in her use of religion. So what allowed that particular person to do that? Do you know, can you tell us just more about her sort of personal biography and what what empowered her to do that?
3: Thanks Nahi, that's a great question. Um, So to give you a little bit of background, and she doesn't like being called Charlotte, she's like, call me Shati. And it was a challenge um, when I was writing about her, beginning to write about her, Because the spelling in the French is C-H-A-T-T-Y, which in English morphology reads as chatty. And I was trying to change it. She wouldn't let me. But chatty is how she wanted to be known. Um, And uh, she got married. She dropped out of high school. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s to get married because that was what you did. You know, you, you were lucky in the rural area in the village of Kabumbulu, where she came from um, in Southeastern Congo to even get an education beyond primary education. Um, she went to United Methodist school and a missionary school, got married and could not have children. And um, after 10 years of trying Um, Well, after five years of trying, she stayed married to this man for 10 years. Um, You know, the war and instability started kicking up in that region um, because the part of Congo that she's from, southeastern Congo, is um, one of the most mineral rich areas in the world and also one of the most economically poor areas in the world. So there are very few opportunities for advancement for women. Your best hope is to get married and to get married to a decent human being and to have children, and that is it. Um, and so she couldn't have children. She did not marry a decent human being. Um, and, you know, in part of the, the, the conversations that we had in the interviews, her husband even came up to her and said, hey, is it okay if I go have kids with other people? Um, because we really need kids. And so when the war came through her region, she actually wanted to join the war because she was hoping to die. So that was her, her way of owning some type of agency that she didn't have in her mm. life as a woman, was to go and die. Mm. And um, in the process, the, my, the chiefs of the clans in her region had all turned to African religion, to Luba religion, to turn to the ancestors and say, we are being invaded this is your land. Give us access to power to protect ourselves. These are people with no military training whatsoever, no resources. And so through indigenous rituals that one made them bulletproof. So they did this. My um, is Swahili and Ningala for water. So Mai Mai means water, water. And there are a lot of um, actually mystical political movements in Africa that connect themselves to the concept of water. And we can talk all day about the, the symbolism of religion and water. And so it's the specific water ritual that you go through. It makes you bulletproof. And it's the use of different elements in nature to be able to fight back. So sticks become sharp weapons, and so she joined the war. She went through this ritual, and it turned out that the fringe benefit of this ritual is that men were afraid to rape my my women because they just didn't know what would happen. So there was this lore, don't rape them. You know, yes. like something will happen to you. Fill in the blank. Think of the most gruesome thing that a man could fear from a woman. And those were the narratives that were flowing. And in my class, we'll talk some more about that. Um, but as when she joined the my, the, the my movement, she ceased to become a woman. She became a my, my warrior. Hmm. And because she didn't die, she was like, well, maybe there's a reason the ancestors want me to live. So she began to look at that as her mission to survive war. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she climbed the ranks of this movement and became completely fearsome. And at the end of the, of the war, she adopted war orphans. So she's raising 10 children as her own. Um, and she told her husband to, you know, go kick rocks. So he's gone. But you know, she was able to come through this really traumatic period. Um, through her access to African religion. And so in my course, Religion, Gender, and Ethics in Africa, we'll talk about those different motifs and how they've empowered women like Shati, poor women from unknown villages and how their access to religion has given them hope and helped them to flourish, not as female bodies, but as persons who are no longer limited by gender roles. Mm. Super fascinating. Thank you. Thank
4: you.
3: Thank
0: you so much. Um, I'm going to turn to the Q&A at this point. And the first question that we received um, comes from Andre. Andre asks or states, these amazing visiting instructors and their research celebrate the voices of Black and Brown women during a time of uprisings against systemic racism. How does HDS see itself celebrating these voices during this time? Um, Thank you so much for the really, really important question, Andre, which I'm not going to answer. I'm going to answer it by shutting up so that you can hear uh, more of the voices from this panel. Um, Stay tuned and please come to their lectures during the semester. Um, The next question we have is um, for Professor Miriam Ayad from AL, who asks, how has the representation of women in ancient Egyptian religion affected
2: the position of women in Egypt today? The short answer, there's no connection because modern Egyptians unfortunately are completely uh, dissociated from our ancient past. Um, and we see that in events happening say in August 2013, where after the um, change in regime um, young adolescent boys would uh, loot museums, provincial museums, and when asked why do you do that, they say, "Oh, you know these objects belong to the government they uh, belong to the tourists um, and it was uh, these young boys attempt to get back at the government um, for the perceived um, wrong uh, they suffered, so not at all in fact um." Uh, there's such a, a dire lack of knowledge of our past in Cairo. And and I think it may have to do with the genesis of the field of Egyptology as a Western field of study that started with a French campaign in Egypt in, a, um, um, in the late 18th century. Um, and part of the reason why I moved back to Egypt in 2011 is to become part of a, a, group, a small group of um, of scholars and activists who are trying to make Egypt's ancient and medieval history more relevant to modern Egyptians. Uh, Sometimes that's an uphill battle, especially when the officials who are in charge of education, higher education, and antiquities seem to also adopt that same view that uh, ancient Egypt belongs to the tourists. And there's this commercialization of our heritage um, that goes hand in hand with the decoupling, which is a very sad um, situation
0: thank you that's really fascinating and I'll, I really look forward to seeing how you're able to bring Egypt back that's um, um, or the the aint the study of ancient Egypt to bear on modern Egypt um, the next question is addressed to all the panelists and it's from Arla who asks how your research bears on the difference in credibility between Uh, that is attributed to male and female clergy and other religious leaders?
4: I I can respond to that a little bit. Um, So I think the issue is not so much one of, uh, it's a great question, but it also sort of, you know, reveals, at least in my own research, that, um, you know, it's not actually one about credibility, because when it comes, at least within the Iranian field and the, you know, the Shia clergy, there are these systems of education and ranking that prohibit women from achieving certain of the higher ranks. So a woman only very recently was allowed to be an Ayatollah. And I think there are you know, something like a handful of them. And so uh, just socially and culturally and uh, religiously in every other way, it is you know, there's this notion that this is man's work. And so while women do all kinds of works, uh, you know, work going, um, for example, doing uh, eulogies or singing uh, at uh, the birthdays of, of uh, sanctities and doing all kinds of work. Um, they aren't really the ones that are vested with the kind of authority just purely systematically to um, to, you know, do the kinds of things that um, that the, that male clergy are authorized to do so um, it doesn't even get to at least within my field it doesn't even get to the point where women can sort of you know be kind of measured side by side men in terms of their credibility.
0: Thank you. Does anyone else want to speak to that question? I can
5: jump in on that. Um, it's a bit of a side answer because the women that I studied were not um, ordained clergy. Um, and in fact, you know, we're speaking as scholarly authorities. And one of the things that interests me, but the, the question of credibility was really pertinent to them. Um, and I'm interested in how they actually had a great deal of scholarly authority and credibility at this time when they were sort of these pioneers as scholars, that they really were unusual and exceptional, like Jane Harrison is the first woman to lecture in Cambridge University buildings. And even though she's a fellow at a women's college there, she's not yet a member of Cambridge because women couldn't become members until 1948 of the university. And she dies in 28. But she was taken really seriously. Her books became adopted as exam textbooks um, for a time. And then her work becomes vehemently discredited. And there are legitimate ways her works become discredited. A lot of scholarship gets superseded when new evidence is found, new paradigms come into play. But there is a really sort of uh, troubling and interesting misogynistic strain to the discrediting that um, does sort of undermine credibility with references to gendered associations with irrationality, unreliability. Um, and I think this is complicated in interest, in interesting ways by the study of religion um, as a subject matter that is sometimes seen as, well, we have to study this subject that is itself somehow linked with the irrational. Um, and so I'm kind of interested in the ways that there's a lot more variety around the way that they have authority and credibility on this particular subject at these differing moments in time in their own lifetimes and in the later reception of their work.
0: Thank you. Um, Well, we are just about out of time. um, And I'm going to close by reading a a question from Meredith. Meredith writes, I am curious about how this program is holding space for and modeling critical engagement with this season of compounding assault. How are you inviting these scholars, women all, and many women of color to center their safety, health, and well-being in a system designed to both obscure and silence women and the value and labor of their work? Uh, Thank you so much for that question. Um, That question is gonna be with us every day throughout this year, um, throughout the program. Uh, Writing a book is an incredible work of personal labor. It cannot be separated from everything about the person who is doing it. Um, In the program, we become intimately involved with the lives of our scholars every year. This year, the truth is, we don't know what that will mean. Uh, Just as many of you do not know exactly what it will mean for you to be studying and working at your scholarship this year. Um, What we hope the program will always do is to amplify women's voices as we, as a society, work through this process. Um, And to make sure that the voices that you've heard today will continue to be heard throughout this year and throughout their careers. And we will support that in any way that we can with their help. Um, I hope these presentations have whetted your appetite as much as they have whetted mine. Uh, I wish I could take all their courses. I can't. And you can't either. You might be able to take one or two or outside chance, three of them. But you can certainly come to all of their lectures, which will be online and will be posted to our website. Um, Thank you to the audience for your participation, and thank you especially to the five scholars who've introduced their work tonight. Thank you for your work and for persevering to be with us this evening. Good night.